This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Conybeer. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. If you're listening right now and you have any comments or thoughts on the show or questions for me or my guests, give us a call. Our number here is 844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. I'm thrilled to welcome my next guest, Alex Roy. He's a famous endurance driver. He's done some fairly crazy things with cars. He's currently editor-at-large for The Drive and also co-host of the Autonicast podcast, Alex Welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. So Alex has set multiple endurance driving records in both in Europe and the United States, including the one that is most impressive to me, the transcontinental cannonball driving record across the United States in 2006, and also an electric car, and we'll we'll get to that as well. But you drove across the country from New York to Los Angeles, sea to signing sea, in less than 32 hours? Uh, 31 hours and four minutes. Yeah. So that's a pretty impressive number. What's the average speed? Uh, the average uh, driving speed is 96.7. was 96.7. And if you include stop time for refueling, which I know you know a lot about because you race cars too, uh, it came out overall to 90.4 miles an hour. That is a pretty crazy number. And you've also set multiple records in Teslas. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, I first went across country in a Tesla uh, with uh, Carl Reese uh, and a whole team, Dina Mastracy, a couple of years ago in a Model S in 58 hours and change. Okay. And then most recently went and across. And does that include recharging also? It includes recharging. Okay. And then most recently went across in a Model 3 in 50 hours and 16 minutes. Okay. Well, could you talk a little bit about that? What motivated you to do that? Because it sounds like that's a lot more time. Than it took in your M5. Well, um, you know, uh, if you go back about 100 years, Erwin uh, Baker, whose nickname was Cannibal Baker, uh, was hired by Stutz and Gardner and uh, a number of companies, Cadillac, uh, to take internal combustion cars and drive coast to coast to demonstrate the efficiency and reliability of internal combustion, which at the time... Like, Just people, how great yeah, the technology is. Oh, my God. Like, who would have thought? And to use... Um, What's called a, uh, I guess, uh, well, gas stations didn't exist, and the inter- interstate highway system didn't exist. So he went across country in 1915 in 271 hours. And over the next 10 years, gas station infrastructure built out, reliability improved, speed improved, efficiency improved of the cars themselves, and times fell. And so he made an entire living out of proving that internal combustion was a thing. He kept doing this over and over again. Decades. And almost every manufacturer, every certainly every American manufacturer, hired him at some point and generally also hired some yellow journalist to ride with him. And whether it was a record or not almost didn't matter. This was These were marketing stunts. But they proved they were proof of concept. Exercises. So in his case, he had the journalist ride with him as opposed to the other way around. Correct. Okay. So, uh, so you know. Uh, in the 70s, you know, Brock Yates, this you know, libertarian editor of Car and Driver, resurrected this notion and called the event the Cano- the Erwin the, the Canwell Baker Sea to Shining Sea Memorial Trophy Dash. And that was a real race. It was illegal, and it ran from 71 to 79. Time Magazine did a cover story about it, and eventually there was a movie made, 
which came out in 81. That was called the Cannonball Run. And so the Cannonball, the word, became kind of part of vernacular of just driving fast, <laughs> doing something crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and today is, you know, people know it's kind of, and it's like Band-Aid. It's, it's just the generic term. But to the people who've done it, and the real thing ended in 79, uh, it was, you know, people approached this like a professional race. A lot of people who went were race car drivers. And Dan Gurney, who just passed away last week, the greatest probably American race driver of all time, went across country in 1971 with Brock Yates in a Ferrari Daytona in 35 hours and 54 minutes. So, And you have to figure out, the traffic doesn't go away, so you have to be thoughtful about when you hit different cities too, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you, if you, think, if you think about it the way Le Mans you know, teams think about this. This is a quant exercise. Having a, a, a talented driver. It's like drive. Moneyball. It's like Moneyball, yeah. You, I mean, I, I, can, I can speak for myself, but I know that the team that broke my record uh, studied what we did and always learns from the pre- pre- previous attempt. You know, we looked at, you know, the DOT data about lowest traffic days of the year, looked at weather data from NOAA, um, and, you know, Oh, it and, really and, is Moneyball. Oh to yeah, you, that out. it was very, it was really serious. I remember this that uh, in nineteen, what was it? Nineteen eighty three was the last really multi car illegal high speed race. You know, no rules. That was called the U.S. Express, and no one from eighty three to maybe two thousand six, when, when I went with my co driver Dave Maher, had made a, a concerted professional attempt to do this. So you know, I, I had read a book called. Um, the oh, what's it called? Uh, the Perfect Mile about Roger Bannister running the four minute mile, and uh, I was really inspired by him because you know for a century people said no one would break a five minute mile, and then people said no one would break a four minute mile, and Bannister, uh, you know, when he his story was that he was not the best Olympic runner, but he was a medical student and he built a treadmill for his thesis designed specifically to train himself in, the, in, the, in how much energy and oxygen exertion was required to break four minutes. So he was a quant runner. So he figured out it can be done. It can be done. And after he broke four minutes, hundreds of people broke it because it was a psychological barrier. It required a combination of quant and, you know, and, 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 and I guess willpower. And so I'm not the best driver, but I was really committed to this. And after I went across... Uh, Seven years later, another team went across a couple hours faster, um, and they had re- studied everything we had done. So we have these hilarious, complex spreadsheets and charts down to like the mile. You know, we went you know, right after um, Google acquired Keyhole, and before Google Earth was released, um, we had uh, we had talked about like if only someone had a mapping solution that could help us plan. This. <laughs> and so Earth, Earth Beta comes out. So we drive across an OS. Well, because you would have had to use paper maps and stuff like that. And we had really shitty. I'm guessing there are people listening right now that don't even know what a paper Paper map map. is. That's crazy. We had 2002 era Garmin uh, GPS units. We had like eight of them. And the maps had to be updated via like USB 1 cables. Really primitive. Google Earth Beta comes out 06, 05, 06. So we drive across, shoot video, and two thirds of it's at night. And our practice run was about 30. 35 hours and we get back and we then get into ground level on Google Earth beta and, and replay the video and match it up with a POV of the, you know, the direction of the car and watch ourselves on Google Earth and then started creating waypoints of where all the potential police traps were. 141 of them. And then we exported that data set back into the Garmin and created our own kind of ghetto database of police locations. 
few years later, we went to Google to visit and explain what we'd done. And Eric McClendon was the guy in charge of, the, of Google Maps over there. And he looked at us like we were crazy. Today, then he went on to run this Uber Mapping. after you had done it. After, he went on to run Uber Mapping and today uh, is one of the most famous mapping guys here. So this is just a nerd exercise, man. <laughs> so it sounds like it was very natural for you to do this with the Tesla Model 3 then. Well, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's made sense you know, what's the future? There's going to be hybrids and electrics in the future and, and ultimately just electrics in decades how, from now. So how do you optimize when you're driving the Model 3 across? Are you optimizing for how quickly you could get across? And what do you trade off that's different than what you did when you were driving an internal combustion engine? Well, the first thing is you, you go west to east in an electric car because of the jet Tailwind? Stream. Yeah, okay. that, that's a fact. Um, you know, I've been across three times different teams to do this, and each time was usually the day after autopilot was updated or a supercharger was added to the to the, the network. And so on that day, is usually three or four Tesla owners going. At, to try to break Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. Because unlike internal combustion, where there aren't a lot of big improvements anymore, and there's really no single manufacturer ever releases anything that's really better. Every time a Tesla supercharger station opens or autopilot's updated or there's a software update related to, say, the battery cooling, someone's going the next day. So I try to get into a car the next day. So more importantly, when you're going across, are you careful with your liquid intake? Uh, are you thoughtful about that, or do you carry a bottle, or how does that work? Uh, well, it depends on your strategy. If you go for a... Um, if you go for like a 15-stop strategy, it sounds just like Lamar, right? If you go for a 15-stop strategy, you have long, longer charge, you have, um, what's it called? Long charge times and... Uh, all the time in the world to yeah. do what you need to take uh, If you of. go for like a 27-stop strategy, which I've done, um, then you're stopping all, all the time. But it's so you never, have no issues at all? No issues. Drink all the coffee you want? Uh, well, coffee is probably, from a health standpoint, it makes you nervous. And makes it a little twitchy, and probably not. It's unwise. You know the uh, Reese Mistracy uh, uh, record, which I went with them back in the day. They were very health conscious, like nuts, healthy living. But I've gone across with people. Uh, Dan Zarilla, the owner of the Model Three, I just went across with. This guy would eat the worst. I mean, and uh, I'm surprised <laughs> he didn't ask for more stops. So. Well, if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Alex Roy, a famous endurance driver, former owner of the Cannonball Driving Record across the United States, editor-at-large for The Drive, and co-host of the Atonicast podcast. So where did your passion for driving come from? Uh, well, my dad was uh, was uh, in the U.S. Army in World War II, and he brought back a Porsche and uh, had a you know, family business with a car rental, bit, a car rental company. And I, always, I just grew up around cars. For me, it's more of an intellectual exercise um, than uh, anything else. I, I love the design of cars. Uh, uh, Will Wright, who was the creator of The Sims and SimCity, uh, unbeknownst to most people, he won in 1981 or 82 the U.S. Express, which was a cannibal-type race. He oh, won you're it. kidding Yeah, he was me. at 24 okay. in a Ferrari 308. and uh, that's is, So that was not a simulation. No, no. He went out and did it, and he, he talks about it. Um, and he is one of the most lucid and brilliant speakers on the topic of man-machine interfaces. And, uh, and he say, I, I think the exact quote was, uh, 
that you know when you when you have an accident in your car, you don't say my car had an accident. You say I had an accident because it is the it is the most seamless um, relationship you have with a machine. And if you take that one step further, it is we've had analog man machine interfaces for a hundred years. People drive cars, and you know in the late '80s with the advent of traction control and, and other electronic aids, we've moved away from this seamless relationship to the point where today these semi-autonomous systems, people say my car had an accident instead of Assuming responsibility. I had an accident. Yeah. Interesting. So people are now, even though the cars have only partially taken over some safety, um, you know, uh, functionalities, people are willing to immediately give up on responsibility. And that's, the, and that's why self-driving cars are so fascinating. Even semi-autonomous cars are so fascinating. How many cars do you own? I, at, at one point, I had eight. Um, no more than one or two worked at one time. Now I own three. Uh, and they're as analog as you can get. I have a Morgan three-wheeler. It's my daily driver in New York City. And an 87 Porsche 911 and a BMW fake German police car. I bet the 87 Porsche is worth as much as all the cars you had before. It pretty much is. Uh, but you know, taking that Cannonball Baker you know, uh, you know, history forward, I had... I, I imagine someone, and maybe I'll be one of the people, is going to take an electric car cross country, maybe an electric autonomous vehicle cross country, faster than any human driver has ever done it. It's inevitable. And that's kind of why it's so fascinating to look at, at transportation today. So will people be hacking into these autopilots to get to the speeds they need to get to long before it's legal to do that? Well, I would say absolutely yes, but you're the person I would ask the same question of. You, you're an investor in a number of you know, interesting companies in the sector. Don't you think someone is going to do that? Of course. Well, of course we, people will do it. We can be friends. But it's pretty interesting. It's an interesting question because you have vehicles that will be able to travel faster than humans can drive cars at those speeds. I think um, – well, that's absolutely true. I think you're going to have you know, mixed in, a mixed environment for a long time of human cars, semi-autonomous vehicles, and, and uh, level four and five cars – but if you add in things that are only being hinted at, like traffic markets, real-time traffic markets, and dedicated lanes and high-resolution GPSs, then uh, it'll be possible for some, and a hacked level four or five car. It's entirely and and a, and someone who spoofs the transponders. It'll be possible to get in the vehicle in New York, have binoculars raised to your face, have the car just get a, just tell the car. Average speed of 150. And then you're watching for the and police. And then I'm watching with binoculars because the police will be trying to stop it, not because they think I'm driving, but they think it's defective. <laughs> and then, of course, when the, if and when they stop us, we'll claim it was defective. Uh, and, uh, and on the way, we will have like a button on the dash, which is the pass button, in which case we are constantly tapping it to push the pass and getting billed in real time. <laughs> so it sounds like you've loved cars for a long time. You talk about the cars you've owned, et cetera. What point did you decide, not just did you love cars, but you wanted to write about cars and, and put the journalism and the storytelling and the reporting pieces together? I never wanted to write about cars. And it, then why did you write a book? And it, why it, are you <laughs> editor-in-chief of The Drive uh, well, and build uh, media properties uh, now? I, uh, I wanted to be, you know, after college, I wanted to be like a war correspondent because my father had been in World War II, and I grew up and went to private school, and I felt that everybody I knew wanted to BS their way through this lazy jobs. And so uh, I'm like, I'm going to become a war correspondent, do something crazy. Um, and after my but father. But even that, you still want to write, you want to tell stories, even if you're getting shot at. I'm an entertainer who just really like, played a lot of civilization. 
Okay. <laughs> really? Going back to, okay. It's a, for me, video games, and I, I like to entertain, but I like to entertain on topics that are interesting. So, um, you know, in 2006, you know, I'd been thinking about doing this cannonball thing, and, and, and William Morris called me up and said, you should write a book about this. I had no idea we'd break the record. It was a fantasy. Oh, so we'd like you to write the record. We hear you're working on this, or write the book. Yeah. The record on the record. Well, actually, the, the phone, the William Morris call was more like, Alex, you know, no one's written a book about what it's like to be a 21st century playboy. What's it like? I'm like, well, I'm not a 21st oh, century. Oh, that was the That frame. was the pitch to me. It wasn't how fast you oh, drive no. across the no country. One had a cl- everyone thought I was joking. I was just going on car races dressed like a police officer for fun. <laughs> and so I said a much better book because Playboy's – what does that term mean? much better book is about what happens when people really commit to doing something out of the box, outside – you know, uh, out, just out of the box for do real. Do they actually do it? Yeah. And, and, how do they, and then all the discipline and yeah. planning and work that went into it, it sounds like it was actually more than a full-time job. It was, uh, and, and a big money loser. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, Rob, I mean, you know, how many people pitch you? You know, ideas that sound crazy. I mean, have you passed on things where a guy came back two years later and actually had done it? Uh, yeah, usually when they'd done it, we find out about it through the news right. or other ways. Right. So they are even just coming back. We, we, we miss a lot of interesting things. So, you know, uh, so we, I wrote the book and then by accident, I got, it, I got a call. I got an email from the subject line was, would you like to speak at the FBI? It's 2008. So I ended up speaking at the FBI Academy and then... All these government Wait, agents. Wait, so what did they want you to speak about? No, that was quite a conversation. Okay. They, they said, well, they basically said, how does a guy with limited resources, time, and, uh, and no profit motive escape, you know, avoid you know, 1,100 yeah. police departments and, and, and aerial surveillance? And, and uh, how did that happen? I said, oh, I'll come talk about it if you pay me. So I got hired to speak by, at the FBI Academy. And then for three, four years, I spoke at hundreds of you know, intelligence services and police departments about this. And, the, and, the, and it evolved into a presentation about uh, out-of-the-box thinking and business plan modeling. Because our presentation is basically a business plan for how to commit crimes <laughs> on, <laughs> on, on public roads. Um, well, and, when you think about cybersecurity, that's what white hat hackers yeah. are doing all the time is figuring out how to defeat these defenses. I wish I'd studied coding when I was younger. I would have think I would have been a great hacker. It's not hacker. too late. Eh. So switching over to the future of autonomy, the future of transportation, what do you think is not obvious right now in the discussion about the future of autonomous vehicles? <laughs> oh, that's, that's a good question. Um, well, th- there's a lot of binary thinking. Uh, almost everyone believes that there's like no shades uh, of gray. No, it, it, this is in Malcolm Gladwell. You know, it's it's like everybody read the tipping point and wrote a book report about it in like eleventh grade in the sector, and uh, you know, and then everyone's trying to do, have these all or nothing solutions. But you know, and and you always hear this. this people always reference, well, cars will go the way of horses, drive will go the way of horses, but if. Peak horse never happened in the way that people use it. Peak horse, 1915-ish, I think he had, what, four or five million horses in this country. But on the planet, the majority of people had never owned a horse, ridden a horse, knew how to ride a horse, borrowed a horse. You even could, at peak horse. Even at peak horse. Peak horse was like <laughs> nothing like peak car. I'm not even sure we've reached peak car now. So if the average— uh, That's true, because when people talk about Lyft and they talk about Uber— 
congestion is actually going up in a lot of cities is what the studies are showing because it's so much easier to get around because you don't have to park that people are consuming transportation even at a higher rate than they did before. That's right. And, uh, you know, it, when solutions, uh, I mean, I've been an angel investor in a number of companies, but when the pitch to me is that this thing is the end, like when this, if this thing is funded and it works, this is the end of this so problem solved well that's what people <laughs> click through on yeah <laughs> but the reality of it is it'll take decades Second. for this transition to happen so i always look for things i believe in things that are the means to an end not the end and so autonomy and electrification are not the goals the goals are solve problem what do people do that they'll pay for to do better with x show me x but if x is the point no 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 no. because people they, they, if you don't have customers you don't, have a, you don't have a solution. It's nothing. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Cunningham, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Alex Roy, a famous endurance driver who's also the editor-at-large for The Drive and co-host of the Atonicast podcast. So what do you think are some of those nearer-term things? We were Before the show, we were talking about Turo a little bit, car sharing. You have... Uber and Lyft, what do you think are some of these trends that may be as large or larger than autonomous vehicles when you look at transportation? Well, you know, I travel a lot and I would get to every city and there's a different for for on the continuum of mobility. And this is, is cities around anywhere. the world. So mobility is a meaningless term, but we're already mobile today. But if you want to take mobility lowercase and make it uppercase and italicize it and make it mean something what could I do better? I want I I'd like to have something like the multi pass from Fifth Element, like an Oyster card. If anyone's been to like Hong Kong, uh, a single point of payment that gives me access to any form of transportation anywhere I go. For a business traveler, this is more critical than for someone who stays local, obviously. And yet, even today, m- several years into the mobility revolution, that barely exists and it drives me nuts. I'd like to see, uh, you know, I've many people, people just have a card that you just show. I get. I mean, what, where is the aggregation? Like when Orbitz and, and Expedia first showed up with the, the matrix of flights, that was like a big thing. Where is the matrix of transportation? Even yesterday, you know, Uber announced that they're going to put bikes. Google Maps doesn't do that for you? Well, but I can't instantly, you know, just engage and, and access any of those verticals within the mobility continuum. And that makes me crazy. And the industry is still light years from where I'd like it to be and where I, the, the average person would like it to be. You know, but the, that's, that's just mobility as platforms, you know, access points, payment. That's one thing. Electrification is going to happen when it happens. That depends on, on, on uh, the policy. So just this transition from gasoline fuel cars to electric. That could happen without mobility solutions or autonomy. You don't, just a natural progression. Yeah. And, you know, obviously Norway happens because they can afford to. They have the national fund. But this conflation of, you know, what is it? Shared, autonomous, uh, a vehicle. I mean, there's no reason these things need to be grouped together or happen simultaneously. And they're not going to. So any, any, anyone who pitches me anything or anyone for a story or money who says they're all going to happen at the same time and their success depends on it, I don't, I don't even want to talk. So you're spending a lot of time. Moving back to autonomous vehicles, looking at different companies doing things in the space right now. Well, that's one of the most fun things of being, I guess, having an editorial, uh, an editor title, or even if it's a, is that I get to see all these you know, mountains of, of pitches. And I also, ha- because I'm 
my journalism career is an accident. I also get lots of business plans. So I get it from both sides. And uh, it's amazing to me that the media, actually the marketing arms and communications departments of the startups themselves, have, are unable to talk to each other and themselves don't really understand what it is they're talking about. Unless you're talking to the engineer and the CEO, and even then, you're not really getting the full picture. So who's doing well? Who's doing the best? Like if Everybody's always wondering, like, who's the best at autonomous vehicles? Well, from a communication standpoint, it's Tesla. <laughs> okay. From a communication standpoint. Storytelling. They own 40% of the global press coverage of anything to do with cars. That's an amazing statistic. It's, it's the, I think it's the highest of any cars companies ever had since the car sector was began. Because uh, they don't, even when there are accidents, they don't exactly hide from it. No. And, you know, they don't, it's like it, all press is good press. It, they, they benefit from having Musk himself. Who almost doesn't matter, and and he's almost. I'm not. I'm not saying he's like Donald Trump, but when when you have a, a someone who owns the center of media gravity, it almost doesn't matter what they do or say because they get the coverage. And so Tesla's, you know, where they are uh, in terms of the uh, progress on Thomas vehicles almost doesn't matter because they've backtracked from every every promise they've made. Okay, so. Let's put aside the coverage for a minute. Who's really doing well? Who's doing well? I was going to ask you the same question. <laughs> um, so obviously, you see all the business plans, you see all the pitches, and you ride the cars across the country. All right. So uh, today, um, the California released the uh, disengagement report, which they release uh, everything every quarter. I forget how. Maybe it's every month. And last week, Navi- and the disengagement report is where they report how many disengagements per thousand miles or million miles. Correct. Where basically the car says, "I don't have it." Right. You have it, driver. Okay. So generally, they report based on two criteria: is um, force disengagement, which is usually technical problem or behavior of another driver, or voluntary disengagement, which is by the engineer who is behind the wheel who chooses to intervene prior to. So he won't get hurt. Correct. So. Uh, that, that's yeah. That's one. That's two sets of criteria right there. Then over there on the other side, you've got Navigant Research came out with a study uh, two weeks ago where they have their ten criteria, which I don't deem to be sufficient because Navigant does not include government relations or volume of data, and then no one talks about quality of data. So when you look at what's really happening, you've got all these companies, startups and manufacturers, they're deploying vehicles anywhere from one to hundreds of vehicles on public roads. Generally, public roads. And, and maybe if it's a car manufacturer, it's usually a private facility. Uh, if it's Tesla, it's public roads. And then they're gathering some amount of data. So Waymo has, uh, is gathering LiDAR-level data. This is the Google effort. It's, it's the Google effort. And, they have, and they're widely believed to be in first place. And it's because they've been out there the longest with the largest amount of real-world data that's LiDAR-grade. And as a result, I think they're at 0.8. I mean, there's some ridiculously in the low number. Yeah. So it's yeah. using LIDAR, which is this great map of time of flight data, of it, building a three-dimensional representation of the world around them. They just, they're building the best stuff right now. They're also only deployed in warm weather, clear weather locations, Phoenix, um, and cities in the south, which makes sense, lower impact locations. Whereas... Uh, and then you've got uh, Tesla. Is out. So um, let's back up. So yeah. Waymo's so, got a few million miles of real-world data. Then Tesla's got hundreds of millions of miles, but it's not LiDAR level. Yeah. Well, that's a great summary. 
We've got about a minute here. Oh, You've shit. done a ton of crazy <laughs> things. What's next? The the minute commercial for what's next from Alex Ray. I'm making an effort to get manufacturers to develop semi-autonomous systems that look like Airbus control systems, which is what people really want. We don't want self-driving cars in my camp. You want we something want, that just keeps you from crashing We the want plane. the uncrashable 911. That's the goal. Great. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. And for people that want to keep up with you and the work that you're doing, where should they go? Uh, AlexRoy144 on all platforms or theatonicast.com. Great. That'd be the best place. Great. And what's the 144 about? That was the number given to me uh, on my first uh, illegal car race, and I just kept it. Great. Well, Alex, thanks again. So we need to take a short break. Just ahead, I'll speak with Olaf Sockers. He is a partner at Maniv Mobility, an Israeli-based transportation venture capital firm. I'm Rob Conibira, founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.